Huge opportunity we have today on the Get Stuck In podcast to have David Horst, a 10-year veteran pro soccer player with us today. David, how you doing? I'm doing great, just trying to hang in there with all of this craziness going on. Tell me about tell me about where you're currently at, what you're currently doing in your current position. Uh, so at the turn of the year, um, I left Real Salt Lakes Academy and I became the director of coaching for a Timbers Alliance club in Medford, Oregon. Uh, the name of the club is called the Rogue Valley Timbers. Um, so I'm about five months into the new job, but uh, I don't think there's a chapter on how to deal with a pandemic in the director of coaching handbook. So it's been, uh, it's been quite the adventure so far. Oh, I can, you can guarantee that. <laughs> um, listeners, uh, these are actually kind of funny come from my kids because uh, I was preparing for the the interview last night, this morning, and and I just said, hey, what would you ask? What would you ask a ten-year, uh, you know, veteran pro soccer player that's played in, you know, three different leagues and has been all over all over the country, Puerto Rico, you know, you know, coaching soccer? What would you ask him? And uh, first thing he said, what what's your favorite brand? What's my favorite? Yeah. <laughs> um, my favorite brand is probably Nike. There you go. Their shoes fit my feet the best, actually. Um, and when I was when I played for the Portland Timbers for the three years, I actually had a Nike contract while I was there. So I, you know, I got to use a lot of their their gear, a lot of their shoes. And um, overall, it was just the brand fit me better. Um, so that's why I kind of preferred awesome for the the Nike brand. Yeah. So right now at Salt Lake Community College, we're having a. Nike, Adidas, Under Armour all pitched to us, and okay. uh, the student athletes they put out a little thing to the student athletes, and they just went nuts. They're like, "It's Nike." I I, I had uh, no idea like it was going to be like ninety five five, like compared yeah. to like you know Adidas to Nike, like how much that brand means to people. It's it's crazy. Yeah, it is, and like I mean, I think you look at all the big clubs around the world now they're all going over to nike nike i just think nike's got a better design that is satisfying to the eye for their apparel um and their shoes so for sure it doesn't surprise me that your kids or that your players wanted to go to nike that's right why why odu and uh what other what other programs you know, old dominion university what other programs were recruiting you were you did you feel like you were under recruited Growing up, uh, did you play club? Did you play DA, high school, all that? So I kind of have a, my my story is kind of crazy in the fact that I'm from an extremely small rural town of Pennsylvania, maybe 5,000 people. And then the next closest town is like 30 minutes away. So I am wow. from the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania. And I didn't play for a big club growing up or, or anything like that. I tried out for ODP every year. I couldn't even make ODP. ODP was based out of Philadelphia, so it was always Philadelphia kids that were playing ODP. Um, so, yeah, I just – I was not a known commodity in the recruiting world. But when I was in high school, I started going to college ID camps. And the very first college ID camp I went to was at Penn State University. Penn State was my dream school. I always wanted to go there. And they had a ton of other colleges there to just help out and, and scout and stuff. And – it's kind of crazy in the fact that no one knew who I, no one knew who I was and I killed it at this camp. I did extremely well and 
got my name out from there. And then, so I ended up going to Clemson's ID camp. I ended up going to a few other colleges on the East coast, but what it came down to then was my last, my last five schools were Clemson, Old Dominion, West Virginia, Penn state, and actually, um, Philadelphia university, I think is what it changed its name. I think it's called Philadelphia university now. Um, and I took official visits to all of those schools. Um, and at, at the end of the day, I felt most comfortable at old dominion when I went on my official visit and they also were offering the most scholarship money as well to me. And, uh, that, that was also the one place where I felt that I could come on campus day one and play. Clemson was asking me to redshirt my freshman year. Penn State wasn't offering any money to freshmen. Uh, West Virginia was actually going through a coaching change at the time. So I didn't really know how I felt about the new coach. Um, and so everything, all the pieces just kind of fell in place for Old Dominion. And I mean, ultimately, it, it did end up being the best place for me as well. I played every single game that I was on campus for, except for the, or I started in every single game, except for the very first game of my college career, I did not start. And then after that, I started every other game. I think it ended up, ended up being 84 of 85 games I started in my college career. Um, That's awesome. So it ended up, yeah, it ended up being a really good place for me. Uh, incredible. Did you ever play Penn State? We did. We, and? Uh, we went up to the Penn State tournament my senior year, and we won it. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That, that, yeah. that, that makes you feel good. Uh, I, love, I love those types of stories. And from someone that has a massive chip on his shoulder, like those little things always, always motivate me and drive me. I bet you were, yep. I bet you were buzzing, had all the boys grown, you know, buzzing to play that match. Yeah, so we ended up playing Penn State my senior year. We we won their tournament. We ended up we played Clemson a few times as well. We beat them every single time. Um, so yeah, so to be able to go to those schools that weren't offered me a lot of money or the chance to play right away and stick it to them felt oh, pretty good. Oh, guaranteed. So you're the perfect guy to ask this question because you you grew up in a small town, did not play for you know, a massive club, so. The COVID nineteen, you know, trying to separate yourself from other kids, or you know, what should kids be doing right now, David, to put themselves in a great situ uh, a great situation after this COVID thing is? It, obviously, it sucks, but there I think there's this is a massive opportunity and a massive window for for kids to really improve on themselves. What do you think? It one hundred percent is. I mean, I know kids are doing distance learning for their regular schooling at home, but let's be honest. I mean, that's only a few hours a day, if that. And how many kids are actually taking that seriously? So, if you know, if I was a kid in this situation, I would be out in, in the backyard every single day, just playing, doing something, hitting a ball off the side of the house, you know, shooting on the goal in the backyard, or just working on my footwork, working on my technical ball work. This is, like you said, a massive opportunity for these kids to work on themselves without a coach being around. Because, you know, when a coach is around, a coach is always looking over your shoulder telling you what to do. But this is your opportunity to go out and fall in love with the ball and fall in, like, fall in love with the game, doing things yourself. I love that. Uh, what, made, what moments in your career made you grow the most? Uh, any moment that I failed. I mean, when we learn the most when we fail, we don't learn anything when we succeed, really. And, um, you know, my first few MLS games, I did not go out there and play very well. You know, I just, I was super nervous, wasn't ready for the pace of an actual game. 
but you know, I learned from those experiences and the next time I got a chance, I was ready to go. And that was, I mean, so just so helpful. And another thing is my first year in the MLS, I wasn't nearly fit enough to be playing at that level. You know, college, you, I was fit for college, but the MLS is the next level. And that first off season after my MLS, I hired my first MLS season, I hired a personal trainer and I came back that second season that I was incredibly fit, ready to go. Um, and I learned just from my first season of, you know, not being fit enough. And because I wasn't fit enough, I didn't play. Great answer. Um, difference in travel, David, obviously very few guys have played, you know, I mean, you weren't in, in, in some of these leagues for very long, but at least long enough to know what the travel was like. What's the difference in travel between the MLS, the USL, and, and it was the NASL, right, with Puerto Rico? So the, the year that I played for, or that I went on loan to Puerto Rico was the year the USL and NASL combined. combined. Because yeah. the, the very NASL last year. Not, yeah. yeah, they didn't, the NASL didn't have enough teams to be considered a league, so the USL accepted all their teams That's into right. it. And the, I think the league was called like USSF Division Two that year. Yep. Um, but yeah, the tra- I mean, the travel, it's crazy, man. The difference is, you know, when you're in the MLS, you get, you get per diem for every day. You get, you don't, you sit either like in the window or the aisle. You take direct flights from city to city. I remember when I was playing in Puerto Rico, you know, we would fly from Puerto Rico to Miami for every flight. You have a layover in Miami, and then if you're playing like Portland or Vancouver or something, you have three or four more flights that day to get to your to get to your location for your game. So, the uh, the travel just there there is a big difference with, but I mean that's just the the financial realities of the difference in the leagues. Now that's that's like worse than college sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> that's brutal. And I, remember, and, and I remember when I was playing in Puerto Rico, we were also playing in Champions League at the time in Concacaf. So we were flying from Puerto Rico to Vancouver, Vancouver to El Salvador, back to Puerto Rico, to Rochester, down to Honduras. Like our travel schedule was absolutely insane. I think, I think we covered something like 75,000 miles that year. That's crazy. Um, yeah. if, you, if you were nine, you played 10 plus years as a professional footballer. Uh, if you were nine, ten, what advice would you give yourself? You kind of already touched a little bit on fitness, but what what would you tell yourself? To just get super comfortable with the ball at your feet, uh, because when you as you get older, the the defensive pressure on you just gets more and more every year. And if you can be comfortable with the ball at your feet, it allows you to be comfortable in those situations when there is a lot of defensive pressure. And if you can deal with that pressure as a player, you are incredibly valuable to your team and to your coach. Amazing. This is David Horse on the Get Stuck In podcast, killing it right now. I'm really enjoying this interview, David. Thank you. Um, What's your favorite international and domestic player and why? Oh my gosh, my favorite my favorite player growing up at the was always Rio Ferdinand. You know, I was a center back, he was a center back, and uh, when I was, oh my gosh, when I, I believe when I was twelve, we my club team actually went to England, did one of those tours, you know, and that was the summer that he was sold from Leeds United to Man United. So like, it was the biggest deal ever in England. So he kind of was always my favorite player growing up, and then domestically um 
you know, it, it's probably not a name that a lot of people outside of Salt Lake or Portland will know, but probably Nat Borchers. He was always my mentor. You know, he kind of took me under his wing when I was in the MLS. And, you know, I loved working with him, playing with him. And till this day, him and I talk a lot. And he's still, he's still, I consider him, you know, a mentor. Yeah, absolute stud. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, just just for talking points, uh, do you know the name Frankie Haydick? I do know the yeah. name Frankie Haydick. Uh, that's my favorite domestic player, guaranteed <laughs> Frankie Haydick. I love the way he played. I loved his style. I loved. Yeah. I, I mean, the guy, the guy embodied what it was to be an American soccer player, yep. and uh, I love I, I, that I, mentality. I've heard some good. I've heard some great stories from players in the MLS about yeah. Frankie. Probably my favorite one is, is that, so Frankie went to UCLA yeah. first day, first day on campus as he shows up as a freshman and they're doing the Cooper test. Apparently from wherever he lived, he rides his skateboard to the Cooper test, <laughs> goes out, crushes the Cooper test in like nine minutes and then rides his skateboard home. Like <laughs> who, who rides your skateboard to the Cooper test? Like that's amazing. Four and a half, four and a half mile, four and a half mile average. Just pounds it right. out and just, all right, boys, <laughs> we'll see you. We'll see you back at the next session. Exactly. Um, I got, I got a couple, I got one I'll, I'll share. Um, so this is, uh, from Steve Sampson and, uh, he's recruiting, you know, U S world cup coach in 1998 and uh, they they had him in Germany. Uh, they were going to Germany to go play uh, Germany the right before right before the World Cup. And uh, Frankie, I guess, slept in and missed <laughs> missed the flight. And uh, you know, I guess you know Steve's fuming, everyone's fuming, just whatever. And Frankie beat them somehow, beat them to the to the hotel, and just sitting there like a puppy dog on the couch waiting for the. <laughs> waiting for the national team to come on. And, you know, it's just like, that's, I don't know. Like, that's not obviously a great role model move, but, uh, you know, I, I just think he embodied, he, he embodied what it was to be a U.S. soccer player, especially in the early 2000s, 90s, 80s. That Especially on the field, he definitely yeah, did. Definitely, definitely. Love it. Um, can you teach being blue collar? And, and, and in your new director and being in charge of, you know, 1600 kids, how, how do you, how do you go about teaching blue collar? And is this something you can teach to be blue collar? You know, I, Oh my gosh, that is a loaded question, but, uh, yes and no. I think if you can set the cult, a blue collar culture for your club, then the kids will see that. And I think over time we'll begin to embody that. Um, can you take a kid in a one-off situation and teach them to be blue collar? Absolutely not. I don't think you can. I think blue collar is something that you grow up in and something you learn from your family, something you learn from the area that you live in. But if you can develop a blue collar culture where the kids, they have to be accountable, they have to work hard for everything they get, then I think kids will be, will grow up to be blue collar then. I love that. Uh, the reason the reason I ask the question is I've always felt from watching you is you 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 are blue collar. You're getting stuck into tackles. You know you're you're clearing balls off the off the line in the 89th minute. You know to secure the point the point on the road or three points on 
three points at home or whatever else. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's I, the, I mean, the reason I, I asked I, that I question. Always, I always prided myself in that, you know, I wasn't going to be the flashiest player on the field, but you know, if I could go out there and, and, and put that hard blue collar work in, then that was the value that I brought to the team. I love it. Uh, <laughs> what team do you support? Oh my goodness. Uh, I actually support Leeds United and it goes back to that trip that we took to England when I was like 12 where, you know, Rio Ferdinand was getting sold from Leeds uh, to Man United. And, you know, I just, we, we went to Ellen Road and saw the Leeds United Stadium when I was there. And so to this day, that's always kind of been the team that I've supported. It's been a few hard years. Um, <laughs> You're on the way it, back. You're on the way I, back. I, I hope so. And hopefully the, uh, the owners of PSG will buy the club and uh, pump some cash into it. That's awesome. Uh, the, the documentaries, you've obviously seen it it's it's amazing yep. i like alan smith or did i say that right alan smith blonde hair boy uh yep. that guy was a legend rio is a yes, legend i mean they're top of the prem i mean it, i mean those early 2000 years like in late 90s they were good man they had some really good players and were playing in the semifinals of champions league and yeah and then just that's a, a they're a perfect example of what happens when a club is mismanaged Promotion relegation, do you feel like promotion relegation will ever happen in the United States? Yes or no? I think it will, yes. No. I, I think it's a far I think it's a long ways off though. Um yeah. I, I think I think we would see the fastest growth in our country and fan support and everything else if there was promotion relegation because every single match, anytime there's three points on the line, anytime there's a point on the line it becomes that much, that much, uh, that much better. Yeah. So I agree with you in the fact that I think the f- it would get gain a lot of fan support. And I think, you know, players will play a lot harder in every game. You know, I mean, I've been on a few teams in my career where at the end of the season, we had nothing to play for and guys threw in the towel and, you know, it wasn't, it kind of sucked as somebody like, you know, with my blue collar work ethic where, you know, I went out and played my butt off every game to see guys do this. But I think financially right now, the owners don't want promotion relegation because you know an owner doesn't want to buy a franchise fee for three hundred and fifty million dollars, and then that franchise gets relegated to the you know USL Division One, like or to sorry to USL Championship, and that's why I just don't think it's going to happen until the league is set firmly with the amount of teams and fi- and each team is set financially. Once that happens, then I think we might see promotion relegation, but. In- Till that point, it's not going to happen. And I, I can understand why. Like, you know, with the NASL way back in the 70s and 80s and fold, it fold, the way it folded, like the MLS now has to be smart with the way they run things financially. And until they can get to that point, we're not going to see it. Can you imagine Robert Kraft? I mean, you know, getting, getting, getting a team relegated on what that would do for – yeah, I, I agree yeah. with you. I, I'm – very, very cautiously optimistic on that, and think it's probably a twenty to thirty year thing right now. It's not in the yeah. short term, but no. uh, it would be. And, and I think, huge. I think fan, yeah, I think fans need to get off their high horse about it as well. Just like these owners have lost millions and millions and millions of dollars just to have the league where it is now, yep. and like they should be. Th- I think fans should be thankful for that. Like the owners have been willing to do that. Um, and until, like, I just think that 
you can't we can't have everything at once it's got to be a gradual progression to promotion and relegation let's get let's get all these other building blocks in place before we have that i always like to remind people too the the league started in 96 and where yeah. people where people don't recognize is like i've been a massive supporter of the mls since 96 like i remember la galaxy dc united very first match just being on the edge of my seat i'm sure the football was not very good, but I, I mean, loving, <laughs> loving every second of it, and you know, yeah. you know, putting my VHS and hit and record on any, and I'd have like ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight, and, and watch those because there was the only that's the only soccer you could find on TV, and yep. you would just rewatch them and rewatch them and just, you know, it's amazing. We're similar in age. It's amazing on how much how much football is available to kids these days. Where you know, right now, obviously not with COVID, but you could. There's more. There's more soccer to watch in the United States than any other place in the world. Yep. You can get a La Liga game, a Bundesliga game, uh, EPL, MLS. With, you know, it, it's not even hard. You don't even need no. satellite. You don't need Direct TV. It's it's just it's so accessible. It's nuts. It really is, and and I think because of that, I think the next generation of soccer fans and soccer players. I think you're gonna see. I think you're gonna see a lot more informed fans and a lot better players because of the fact that we're able to see so much on TV right now. I love that. What would your off seasons be like? Um, Again, you seem like a player that would always come in incredibly fit. You recognizing, you know, taking that time that you have off to try to separate yourself between yourself and the rest of the competition. What would your off seasons look like? What was your day to day Monday through Sunday more, more or less look like? Uh, usually like for the, for about the first month when the, after the season ends, uh, I would take that completely off. I would get my mind right and kind of just get away from the game for a little bit because, you know, the MLS season is extremely long and extremely grueling with the amount of travel that we have to go through. Um, so that you take that first month and you go on vacation, um, you get your body right, get your mind right. And then after that first month, it's, you know, you, it's, it's back to the back to the grind. It's it's going to the gym every day, working on your strength, working on your fitness, working on your body, and getting that right for the following season. So preseason in the MLS usually starts right at the middle to end of January. So you're getting about you know a good month and a half to two months of off season training in, and it the MLS the MLS off season sucks because. It's during Christmas and Thanksgiving and these times where you want to eat all this good food, but you know you have to really watch what you eat because you don't want to pack on the pounds. Yeah, I love that. Being drafted in the first round, uh, talk to me about that. Uh, were you? How did that go? I mean, the process has obviously changed now from the MLS Super Draft until now. Um, yeah. Were you surprised? I mean. When you heard your name, what was that like? Oh my gosh. I mean, hearing, so the draft my year was in Baltimore. So it was really close to, you know, where I grew up in Pennsylvania. So like my whole family came down for the draft. A couple of friends came down and, um, you know, they have all the players sitting up in the kind of the front of the hall. And you really, you, I mean, you don't know when you're going to be drafted. Minus those first few guys that get drafted that know they're going high. You know, beyond that, like, it's a crapshoot with where you're going to get drafted. So you're sitting there like, well, you know, is it going to be first round, second round, third? Like, when is it going to be? And um, 
I remember after the 13th pick, I was sitting there and my agent came up to me and he's like, hey, Salt Lake's taking you with the next pick. And I was like, wait, what? And Don Garber goes up and says with the 14th pick, we also like selects David Horse. And I was kind of like, holy crap, this is happening right now. Like, you know, I got to get up and walk up on stage. <laughs> and uh, I mean, just that feeling, there's nothing, I mean, besides my, my child being born and my wedding day, like there's no, there's no other feeling like it to know like, Hey, I'm, I'm living my dream right now. I'm about to walk up, shake the MLS commissioner's hand and hold up the real Salt Lake Jersey because I just got drafted. So it's an, it's an absolutely just incredible feeling that I don't think anything else, you know, will, will in my sporting career now will probably come, will, will, will match that. Apart from being drafted, what else would be your pinnacle, the pinnacle of your career? You know, I, I won the MLS Cup in 2009 with Salt Lake. The following year, we won the the USL Championship with Puerto Rico and played in Champions League. So those those couple things would for me are probably like uh, the, some of the greatest moments in my uh, soccer career. What was so special about that 2009 team? Because they weren't even supposed to be in the play. I mean, we we RSL made the playoffs. They had to get a result in the very last game. Yep. We're playing out of the Eastern Conference, uh, <laughs> which sounds just crazy to think right. about that. But like, what was what was special about the time? What made that team so resilient? I mean, I think it was the chemistry of that team. Um, and I actually just talked about this with somebody not too long ago. But that, at that point in time, most of those guys, most of us, we were young. We were single. So off the field we were doing everything together and even even you know we had javier morales and five we had these foreign guys and they were coming to hang out with us no matter no matter what we were doing if it was going bowling if it was going out after a game you know we did everything together and when you do everything together like that as a team you when you're on the field you live and die for each other out there because you know what the person next to you is playing for because you spend so much time with them, whether it's money, whether it's their family, whether it's, uh, you know, fame, fortune, whatever they're playing for, you know what it is. And you go out there and you live and die for them on that field. And I think that that's what made that 2019 so special was just that, that chemistry and that camaraderie that we had as a team. And it's tough to find that in a professional setting college yeah, there's great chemistry, great camaraderie between the players, but you just don't find that type of thing at the professional level, and that 2009 team had it. Truly kind of like the team is the star mentality yeah. really was there. Uh, if you look at salaries even uh, on that 2009 team, uh, there wasn't a huge, like like your starting 11, the dips weren't like incredibly no. – you know, because all of that's just general information from people. And you would yep. say the team is the star. And then you really look back and you're like, holy crap. I mean, all these guys are at a certain threshold. I mean, give or take. I mean, you're a rookie. Maybe maybe not as, as quite there. But yeah. uh, um, but there really was that going on for, for almost like a three, four-year period. And uh, I've actually talked a little bit with, uh, with Garth about how that when, – when, when that kind of left – that's kind of what made it. It was. It was. It became a little bit more difficult to have the team be the star, where yeah. you know not everyone's getting paid the same thing. Yeah, I mean, and you, I mean, credit to Garth for building that culture. Credit to Jason Christ and those assistant coaches for building that type of culture, because 
you know, they established it and we all bought into it on and off the field. And just as a whole, that organization that year was pretty special. What was playing under Jason Christ like? Oh, I mean, he's a fantastic coach and he, he was extremely organized and had a plan for everything that we did. You know, I've played under some coaches that, you know, they throw a ball out and they say, go play. But Jason, he was very um, meticulous with his planning. And I learned those first few years, I learned so much from playing underneath him. Not only like, not only that I had to be extremely fit as a player, but you know, how to play a possession style football because, you know, I came from, from the college game, which isn't necessarily a possession-style game, back, especially back then. And, you know, I came into this team where he want, he played the 4-4-2 diamond and he wanted to, you know, have a possession-style game. So I just learned so much of playing like that from him. Toughest environment you've ever played in uh, in regards to fans, in regards to pitch, in regards to everything – just, I mean, we've all been there, but maybe even more so to your level that you've played. Is there ever a game that it was just that stadium was always incredibly difficult to play in, or or a particular moment that the environment was incredible and very difficult to play in front of? Um, probably the one of the hardest places to play is Kansas City, because the cool thing about their stadium is that it's right on top of the field. Like their fans are right there. It get in the in July and August in Kansas City. It's like a hundred degrees, hundred percent humidity. So it's just steaming hot, and those fans are just going bonkers. Like, so not only are you dealing with the heat, but you're dealing with those fans, and it it was it was a tough place to play. Now I've played in a few stadiums, like with the Portland Seattle rivalry. Rivalry. I played in Seattle when they sold out that stadium, seventy thousand people. Um, playing in Atlanta with seventy five thousand people, but they're not those stadiums are so big that they're not intimate and right on top of the field so it doesn't have that same type of feeling that the kansas city stadium does and i mean just when it gets when it's just so hot in there it's like the 80th minute you're covered in you're covered in sweat head to toe and you just got these fans still screaming at you you just you just want to tell them to shut up sometimes but it was a hard place to play but it was a really fun place to play as well i love that Self-reflection being a huge um, hot button right now with U.S. soccer for players and for coaches. Talk to me about as a as a player and and and, and as a coach. What is your what was your self-reflection process? Because I think as as players we're always going to self-reflect. Hey, how did that go? What was that about? Um, did you have ever a routine when you were a player? Do you have a current routine as a coach on self-reflection? Um, definitely when I was a player, I, I would watch the game back because the video does not lie. Like you can sit there on the bus after a game and be like, man, I did that well. I didn't do that well, but guess what? You don't actually know what you did well and didn't do well until you watch the tape because the tape does not lie. And I had trouble sleeping after games that I played in. So I would probably in the, in the hotel room or at home, I would watch as much of the game as I could until I fell asleep. And then the next day I would watch the entire thing through again and just kind of take some notes of what I did well, what I didn't do well, where, where I can improve next time. And I would also take a few notes on what the other team's players were doing as well. Those strikers, just so that I had those for future use. I like that. As a coach, um, 
how do you self-reflect and is this something you've been able to do? I mean, obviously you've been in the position for five months. You were at the Academy as well. Uh, but I mean, what are, what are, what are, I mean, have you been able to self-reflect and what things would you self-reflect as a coach? Um, the biggest things that I would definitely self-reflect on was, did I do enough to prepare my team for their game and what could I have done differently to get them ready next time? And, you know, I would be able to sit down and kind of think about those things after games. And also, you know, I put, or I was working with some extremely experienced people in the RSL Academy as well. And I would talk to them and kind of just pick their brains and ask their opinions of, Hey, what could I have done different in this session? Or what do you think I could have done different? And getting the feedback from them as well was so valuable. Counterpressing being incredibly just more important of a trend and you were kind of more on the backside of counter-pressing, right? And, and how much that's changed in the past decade of the importance of putting pressure on the twos and threes and the fours and fives as they're in the build-out stage. Talk to me about counter-pressing, especially maybe from you know a defender standpoint and maybe even explain what how you see what counter-pressing is. So it's so funny because when we would play against teams that, that counter-pressed or pressed high or anything like that for me personally as a player it was almost easier to play against them because you're just reacting the game is going so fast that you're just relying on you know second on your instinct and you're just playing and it was almost harder for me to play against teams that sat back because you would have all this time in the world on the ball and you're like hey i can go there with the ball i could go there with the ball and you're now you're overthinking the game when there's a low press on you or, or a low block against you. Whereas when teams high press you, it's just instinct. You're just playing. It's, it's like you're just going out there and you're doing what you did in practice. And it almost becomes easier to play against sometimes. And personally, as a player, then when you are counter pressing, it's a lot of work. It is. I mean, counter pressing requires an incredible amount of stamina and fitness work to pull it off and pull it to pull it off successfully really um but it's funny like when i've played against a few you know uh mexican league uh teams in my time and when you pressed against them they would just pick you apart but when you gave them time on the ball and you made your two lines extremely tight and tough to break down they had nowhere to go with the ball because they just wanted to try and play through you but if you prevented that they didn't know what to do so I definitely, you know, I've had some good experiences with that and some bad experiences, but if you can pull it off, it can be extremely successful. I mean, just look at Liverpool, look at RB Leipzig, look at some of these, or Dortmund back, uh, you know, five, six years ago. Look at these teams that are pulling it off. It's very successful. But on the professional level, you have to have a young team to pull it off. I think the team that pulls it off best in the MLS is uh, Red Bull, New, uh, Red Bull New York. If you have an older team, it's going to be extremely hard to pull it off because older players do not want to run and press the ball. Um, but I like this I, from the at the club level. I like the style of the counter press and the high press. Yeah, it, it, I think it all changes a lot too. Where uh, subs sub restrictions are there. I mean, when you only can sub three times, it it makes a pretty different. Uh, Look at it in the college game, when the college game where you got, you got, you know, 18, 20 guys that can be in your rotation, it changes pretty significantly oh, yeah. right now on, 
on how you compress, when you compress, where you compress, and why, and why you press. Um, yep. Just looking at that, uh, David, what advice would you give to young players? And we kind of already hit on that, asking you the question about the nine-year-old self, but. You know, kind of going more deep into the question, what advice would you give to, to young players right now that, you know, aspire one day to potentially, you know, get a Division One scholarship or play at, play at college or, or get an opportunity to uh, play in the USL MLS? I think what kids at that age need to understand, if they want to be successful and play at a high level, it will require sacrifice. And... A lot of people don't want to make sacrifices and that's why they don't get to the next level. They don't, or they don't get to the highest level. You might have a chance to go hang out with your friends on a Friday night, the night before a game. And well, you probably shouldn't do that because you should be preparing for your game. Or, you know, maybe, maybe you want to eat eight cookies one night or something, but it's going to affect your fitness the next day. So those sacrifices that you make, you know, when you're a teenager, when you're 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, those will pay off when you're 19, 20, if you want to get to that next level. But if you don't make those sacrifices, then they're not going to pay off. So kids need to understand that. And it also applies in whatever else they do in life, that if you want to get to the highest level and be successful, it will require sacrifice. David, I've really appreciated this interview. I feel like there's so much content for Young coaches, everything else, and young players, and very interesting. I really wish you all the best as you go into this new position, new stage of life, and let's hope we can get back on the field as soon as possible and start knocking a ball around, and and, uh, let's cross our fingers it happens sooner than later. I hope so, man. I'm I'm itching to get back out there, so and I want to get working with these kids out here, and I'm sure they want to get on the field. So I'm excited to get back out there, and I appreciate you having me on this. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks, David. Appreciate you. Yep. Thank you. Bye. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll catch you next week on another episode of Get Stuck In.